Are you listening? Stai ascoltando? Voi slusciate? The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello, world. Welcome to the Global Voices Podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. In this episode, we get chatty about language and especially how languages evolve through online communication. This month, Global Voices has a special series of articles on the topic called Language and the Internet. You can find it at globalvoicesonline.org. First up, Solana Larson, our managing editor, talks to Global Voices Israel author Carmel Weisman about her new book. It's specifically about Hebrew and Hebrew speakers on the Israeli web, although it also sums up in Hebrew a lot of the existing research worldwide about patterns of uh, discourse, internet language, language and identity, and language and relationships online. I noticed that people expect language to be about words. So they think, you know, oh, so this is like some kind of dictionary of the web, and uh, it, it talks about how people talk on the web. But it's much, much more than that. It's very important for me to say that the language on the web is not only how we speak, but it's also our body on the web. It's our avatar. So what is so special about the Hebrew language online? Why is it different from how it's spoken? Much like research on English and other languages, the language changes profoundly. First, you see more and more, and this is true for other languages as well, you see more and more spoken language being written online. And then after that, some form of jargon, of online jargon, is going back into the spoken Hebrew. So you have a different level of slang. This was true for, in the days of chats, and last decade. This was true for many internet applications, for the internet as a whole. But in the last couple of years, it's even worse. It seems that we have many, many diverse platforms that are a world of themselves, like Facebook, Twitter, Wikipedia, and each and every one of them is like a world, like a space in which you have a different jargon, different norms of language. So it was interesting to look at it that um, it's like having many, many forms of slang of Hebrew. I mean, we're so small in geography that you almost don't see different dialects of Hebrew. We don't have such a thing. Almost. I mean, there is some difference, there's slight difference between how people speak a few words in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv. But that's it. Suddenly we have a lot of geographies online and each and every one of them has its own slang and its own manners. And you can actually start seeing the richness of this Hebrew, of those dialects online. It's a very, very old language that wasn't used for a long time. It was used here and there, but it was considered sacred language. It wasn't allowed to be spoken daily. And uh, only in the last century, in the beginning of the last century, almost 50 years before State of Israel was started, Eliezer ben Yehuda is the one who just who revived Hebrew language. He said and took the biblical language and started writing new words that would fit everyday life and... Uh, 
Orthodox Jews were very much against this. They were trying to stop this because they thought the language is sacred and shouldn't be spoken in daily lives. They speak Yiddish. And a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem, especially, still speak Yiddish in the everyday life until today because of this belief. And the language online is another stage in this evolution. Is there a pushback on that stage of evolution as well? Are there some people who find it to be a, a negative influence on the Hebrew language? The public discourse says that it's going backwards, that the beauty of language is dying and the internet is killing it. But we know those statements and they were proved by research not to be true. I mean, it's interesting that the linguists and communication researchers are the ones who say that this isn't happening. It's the linguists who say that it's rubbish. <laughs> but it is a common thought, it is a common discourse that the language is not as beautiful as it used to be. But actually it's becoming more and more rich. It's not replacing or making something disappear, it's just another layer. And people today, I think, they need to know more dialects in order to get along. I think it, it, it's like that in every language. Think about a new language that, that you're going to learn today. If you're going to a new country, if you're immigrating and learning a language, you have to learn a lot of layers of that language because the formal language that you will learn in school will not be enough. You have to learn the slang, and then you have to learn the internet slang, which would be different. It is different in many languages. And then you have many, many layers of dialect and irony and things that, I mean, online languages, it may be very short. It shortens things like an SMS or Twitter, but it's also very rich with irony and humor and intertextuality. And it actually challenges you. Tell me a little bit about your own writing online. What are some of the spaces where you yourself are active on the internet? I have an account in almost everything there is because it's my profession, you know, to to see what's going on there. But uh, personally, I like more and I, I'm active more on Facebook. I used to have a blog and I was a blogger for many years, since 2003. And uh, a, few, uh, a few years ago or so, I opened an English blog, but it's very hard to blog these days because every idea that I have I am compelled to uh, write it down in one sentence and tweet it or, or put it in Facebook with a link or a picture or a video and then um, it takes time until I get a thought that I want to develop it into a story and want to sit and think more about it in order for it to be a post. So I have less and less opportunities to update and I think it happens to uh, quite a few bloggers. What are some of the stories that you've written for Global Voices? And apart from, you know, time constraints and everything, what are some of the challenges you've faced in writing stories for Global Voices about the Israeli blogosphere? Stories for Global Voices are normally uh, an aggregation of a large discourse. So it's a challenge to choose uh, from uh, when bloggers and, and people on Twitter and Facebook are quarreling about something or there's a hype around something and there's a conversation, then you have a lot of material and it is a challenge to choose uh, the best or the most representing bits of the story to translate them. So actually a short post on Global Voices takes a lot of work because you have to read the entire conversation, understand what's going on there, give out the big picture through just a couple of small messages that you translate in order for, for that to happen. So it's quite a challenge. 
you know about the Technology for Transparency Network? The Technology for Transparency Network is a participatory research and mapping project. The aim is to gain a better understanding of the current state of online technology projects that increase transparency, government accountability and civic engagement in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, China and Central and Eastern Europe. The project is co-founded by Open Society Institute's Information Programme and OMEDIA Network's Media, Market and Transparency Initiative. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. Online or offline, the languages that we speak and write say a lot about who we are. A choice of official language for a nation can also reveal much more than just communication. Sara Moeira is the Global Voices Portuguese Language Country's editor. She told us about having a journalistic patch that is not just geographical or topical, but more closely linked to language. I have to keep an eye in the Portuguese language blog spheres and social networks to see how the citizens from these countries that speak Portuguese as one of the official languages, to see what they are reporting that's being ignored by the mainstream media. So when you are monitoring these blogs, are they written in Portuguese and then do you also translate into other languages for Global Voices? Yes, most of the blogs are written in Portuguese, except for East Timor, where Portuguese is, is one of the official languages, but people don't speak it a lot, so they write mostly in But the idea is to identify these stories, either if they are written in Portuguese or Tetum, and then translate them to English, so that it can be understood by a broader audience. When it comes to people writing in Portuguese, does the choice of language have a political impact? So if, say, in Equatorial Guinea, if it is an official language to speak Portuguese, do people necessarily write in this language or are they more likely to write in their mother tongue in a more local language? Equatorial Guinea is absolutely political. I don't believe that many people speak Portuguese in the country. And it's probably more, more like East Timor, but East Timor has been a Portuguese colony, so there are more people speaking than, it, than in Equatorial Guinea. But even so, for the case of East Timor, because during the Indonesian occupation for 25 years, people were not allowed to speak Portuguese. Nowadays, there is an age gap. People between 10 and 40 years old, more or less, don't speak it at all. But the other ones do. But the other ones aren't using internet a lot. So the choice of Portuguese as an official language when the country became independent was very political. And so there are ties in history that connect both countries. But then you see the result in what you can find online. And when people aren't writing in Portuguese language, you understand that the choice of language is also a bit strange. It's not very direct. Is Portuguese then the language of politics and official processes? And in which case are poorer communities not so empowered if they don't speak the official language, if they don't speak Portuguese? In that case, Portuguese is the language that is used by the government. So all public officials have to speak it. 
And if they don't, maybe they don't have uh, much access to jobs. So it's also a way to, to discriminate people. In many cases, people are writing in their mother tongue and not in Portuguese because they're younger and the younger people are the ones that are online. Is that right? Yes, in the case of Vistimor, yes. Is this applied in education, do you know? Are they speaking Portuguese in schools or also local languages? The official language for education is Portuguese. But even the teachers, many times, don't speak Portuguese in a perfect way. So I think Portuguese is also gaining its own dialect in Istima. The country is so small, but they have 16 different languages and 30 dialects. They use many languages during the day. I think the average would be using four languages. Do you think that this division of using so many languages through a day divides a sense of identity? Or do you think that is part of the sense of identity when it comes to Timor? I think it's part of the sense of identity. It's very rooted in the culture nowadays. And you can see for each person, even their mother tongue, Tetum, is used in different ways because they pick words from other languages and mix it into their own language. And I think this is also shaping the, the culture itself. And so on a, a slightly lighter note, we've been talking about language a little bit via the emails for Global Voices. Apana Ray, another member of the Global Voices community, has pointed out that she had more of an amusing experience. And she says, many years ago, I visited Persepolis with a group of young Iranian women. They did not speak a word of English, so we spent a good amount of time giggling and poring over an English Farsi dictionary to get ourselves understood. We looked up and saw an extremely handsome young tourist walking ahead of us and started talking about him. And lo and behold, we could understand each other perfectly without a dictionary. Given that Portuguese is such a global language, is there more of a chance that you will find people the world over who speak it? And of course, are there things that transcend language anyway, whether you're speaking Tetu or Portuguese or, or English, wherever you are? Yes, of course. The body language is also an important part of, of how people communicate once you are talking face to face. And there are some signs you can always interpret from being close to a person. Though this is a bit harder to get once you have to meet the people through the internet. But <laughs> through the internet, I think that when bloggers use uh, photos and video to show how their lives are in their own places, many times you don't need to, to have a formal language to understand what they, the message they want to pass only with those images. Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline/lingua. There's a lot to celebrate when it comes to differences in language, from the sound to the culture related. In some places, a choice of language can be very involved in the way a story is told. Claire Ulrich is the editor of the Global Voices Lingua French site and the assistant editor for Francophone content. She took a moment to tell us about some tales from the village that we could all learn something from. 
I've chosen this recording done by Mr. Bukhari Konate down in Mali, in Africa, West Africa, because I've always been fascinated by local languages and African languages. This is rare, because this is the recording of a tale children in the villages of Mali here at night time in Bambara, that is, in one of the common used languages in um, this part of Africa. It's a tale of wisdom, and I do believe in this um, heritage we all have, cultural heritage, because I love tales, mm -hmm. I love children's tales. I think it's very important to preserve this African language that have no presence to speak of on the net for now. You never know. We hope the Internet will safeguard this uh, heritage. And um, I'm truly happy to, to point um, readers to this tale because um, they can hear it. They can see, hear how it feels, the language, and then maybe they will um, play it for their kids. Do you think that the internet is helping oral tradition, but on a, a much more grand scale? It is, but nowadays people use the word storytelling. But from my standpoint, yes, of course, it's a huge treasure trust uh, of stories. But we do have to make room for people, stories that I never heard. And I think this tale from the snake and the squirrel and how the wisdom of the old snake even though the end is very sad, is something to be treasured and something to be safeguarded, absolutely. Ziri, the squirrel has great confidence in the speed of its four legs and always walks in open ground. One day, the snake, who was trying to share his wisdom with the squirrel, called for caution asking him to stop walking in the open. Otherwise, one day he warned, if a short man does not suffer, a long man will suffer. The squirrel, still believing that he could reach the safety of his hole in case of danger, did not listen to this wise advice and continued to walk on open ground as he pleased. One day, a hunter and his son went hunting with their dog. They saw the squirrel, who, having seen them too, began to flee with his long tail bouncing in the air. The squirrel, not being able to reach his hole, jumped directly into another hole on his way. It was the hole where the wise snake was hidden, quietly. The hunter and his son began to dig up the earth, looking for the squirrel, and when they found him, they killed him. Upon leaving, the son saw a long tail. It was the wise snake's tail. They also killed the snake. This story is intended to teach a stubborn child that he is responsible for his evil deeds and of their consequences for others. I followed Bukhari Konate's blog for a long time. He was among the first Malian bloggers and a very prolific one on his blog Fazokan. And he did a very interesting thing. He always quoted tales from his village, and he always quoted tales his grandma told him, or quoted 
little quotes from every day, and I've been I've discovered through that an enormous new territory, how people with very hard life in Africa saw life, saw human relationships, uh, saw how you treated well your well next of kin, what were your duties, and what are your rights in this particular society. Just little tales from the villages opens you to a huge realm that is another culture. So I understand, although we can hear his voice very beautifully uh, for the podcast this time, and I'm very grateful for this, but it's usually in the written form that he tells us these tales. Yes, and we at Global Voices in French, we did encourage him to record them because he now has a second-hand iPhone donated from France, and um, it's got coverage, so he could record tests and record his tales. We're hoping that uh, this experiment will flourish and encourage other people in its village or other villages to record, you know, tales of wisdom or tales from the villages. We've been at him, Bocariconate, to publish his tales. But now I think with podcasts, another possibility opens and it will be incredible because he will be able to record very simply, even where there's no electricity, no internet connection, wonderful tales from his villages, and plenty of villages along the river Niger. Do you think that there is a way to translate this habit in a more contemporary setting? Do you think maybe there's a chance that we should hear a tale from from your village in Paris at some point? Of course. You know, tales are universal and tales are wonderful. Tales are for all days and all ages and every occasion. And I think um, our lives are spinning, you know, tells every day. So this is one of the most exciting um, aspects of the web. Of course, it's to work. Of course, it's to network. Of course, it's sometimes to earn a living. But most of all, it's to bind people. And the best way to bind people is through stories. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. Language, of course, is not always just about what you can read or say. It's also about what you can make. Jeremy Clark is the man with the code and design behind the Global Voices site. So the things that he can write enable all of us to contribute, navigate, read the content and more. I asked him how he got involved. I met the previous person who had my job, Boris Anthony, who was there from the start. He was friends with Ethan and Rebecca, the founders. I ended up meeting him because I was wearing a Creative Commons t-shirt at school one day, and this guy told me I should meet his friends if I wanted to get into the local Montreal web design industry, and I ended up meeting Boris, who hired me to be his assistant on Global Voices. So what is the site based on? How is it published? It's based on the WordPress CMS software that gives you the ability to edit most of the content through a web interface with the background being that it runs on PHP programming language with uh, MySQL database. The whole thing runs on a Linux web server with Apache. And does the code reflect the politics of the website? Is it quite open? You mentioned Linux there, which tends to be a little more open source. Pretty much everything it runs on is uh, free software, as well as being open source. Uh, Open source is like a more general term, and free software is a more specific one. 
that describes the most radical format of open software development. And WordPress is like that too. So I think from the start, they wanted global voices to be synchronized with that open development communities. And WordPress was a great choice. Uh, Luckily, it also turned out to be most people consider the most usable and uh, effective software for this type of publishing where you have lots of non-technical users who have to do the content editing. How have you modified the base on which we work? Have you brought in your own code to make things easier? The way WordPress is designed is out of the box, it gives you basically a blog. And then there's different themes you can download that give the blog different looks. You can also get themes that do other kinds of things, though when we first started doing Global Voices, pretty much all of the themes available just made it look like different kinds of blog. So from the beginning, we've been writing our own themes. WordPress is designed so that you can write custom themes that change the way it looks and feels from the front, and then plugins which affect how it behaves. Over the years, I've written thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code in plugin format to do things like manage the way the updates are displayed separately from the long posts, to give us all the nice category clouds that we have and different navigation elements that aren't part of the default WordPress installation. Mm. Uh, We've also used tons of other third-party plugins to get a lot of important features like caching and podcasting plugin, for example. I didn't write all that code. We've also used a few themes from out there in the world, but for the most part, our themes are custom written because we had a lot of special needs. And back in the day, there just weren't good choices of third party themes mm-hmm. that could do what we need. Though, theoretically, if, we were start- if I was starting from scratch today, I might start with one of the themes that are out there because there's a lot more great magazine sort of layout themes that you can download and use as a base. What's it like trying to run sites that have so many participants? I mean, it sounds like there's more risk in that case for something to go wrong. Yeah, well, there's a lot of complication that comes in. Over the years, I've found uh, several times when Global Voices had problems related to users that it seemed no one else had had before. Like we essentially discovered bugs in the WordPress core that no one else had noticed because they just didn't have enough users. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have performance problems on the site related to anything where you're sort of checking all the users for something. We need to do that really carefully because we have hundreds. We have about 700 author type users on the main Global Voices site. Whereas most WordPress sites have like one, the average one has like one to two. And then a big site usually has maybe a dozen or two dozen authors. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of special considerations that come into it. Just like with categories, we have the same situation because on Global Voices, we have a category for every single country in the world, as well as uh, dozens and dozens of topics. So we end up with situations where just listing all those countries can be a huge strain on someone's browser because it's such a long list of links. Whereas the normal WordPress situation is that someone has like 20 categories that cover some general topics and that's it. So if it is only you who is backing up this end of the site, and you know we don't wish anything to happen to you, Jeremy, of course, but what happens if you have bespoke code and you're the only one running it and you need to hand over the keys for whatever reason? Will, will other people understand how to make this work? I hope so. Anytime you have just one person, you get a lot of efficiencies from having just one person because I don't have to spend time explaining everything to someone else. You're only paying one person. But the trade-off is that if I expired early, that would be make it a lot harder for the next person who took over. I really focus on making all the code I write be logical in a way that makes sense. 
I'm not a good programmer. Like I, I get things done with programming, but I think I'm actually better at communication uh, in a lot of ways. So I often get confused about my own code. And so I do lots of documentation inside the code. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like a perennial issue in development where a lot of people want code that has been heavily commented, that explains what's happening, that tries to make connections between the different parts of the logic. And then a lot of other people feel like it's a waste of time because they could just write more code with that time. My experience has been if I don't document it, I confuse myself in the future. Uh, So I write it for myself. But I think the secondary result would be that if someone else came down, uh, they might not like how I wrote it. That's how code works or like anything works. You know, no one likes other people's style. But uh, I think they'd be able to figure it out. Excellent. And so tell us something about you that we might not know. The way I got into making websites was actually that I was trying a webcomic about my life in 2003 when I was in Cégep, a college in Quebec where I live. And I did a project where it was a website where each day I would write a comic strip about what had happened to me that day. I had to build a website for that and it was like terrible little, you know, nightmare involving tables and all the bad things that web designers know not to do nowadays. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if uh, you want to know what I was thinking about in 2003, you can read the comic strip. My website is jeremyclark.org and then in the sidebar of my website, you can find uh, the ungrateful biped link, which is the name of the comic. Well, that's all we have for now, but rest assured there's plenty to be said and we'll be back with more. If you'd like to get in touch about this podcast, then you can drop me a line to podcast at globalvoices.org. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook too.